0: I got the uh, headphones in because it's a professional thing to do, first of all. And, <laughs> and uh, second of all, it's so we can hold for sound, like if that police chopper comes back around. Oh, there! You know, hey, those you USC students. Voices.
1: Welcome to South Central L.A. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hear police cars, fire trucks, and LAPD
0: choppers. choppers. L- the ghetto a- bird, as we call it. The ghetto bird. All right. Man, it is it is good to be back on campus, first of all. I'm uh Bringing back some memories. I'm not going to cry or anything, but um, it's some good, some good times here.
1: It's a good place. I mean, it's a little different than uh, some other campuses. It, you know, USC's trying to, at least the former president, I don't know who we're going to have president now. It's a whole other story. Has
0: tried to capture some of the East Coast's flair, flavor, and look.
1: Mm-hmm. So.
0: I remember the first time I set foot on this campus. I was working at, with campus ministry over at UCLA, I was very hesitant to come over here, uh, mostly because of a stupid football game when USC killed the University of Oklahoma in that 05 uh, championship game. (laughs) And I was a big OU fan growing up. I was like, oh, hell, I'll never work over at USC. And I set foot on campus. and I just felt God just kind of start moving in me. And I loved the campus immediately. I loved the feel of the campus immediately. It was uh, just my speed.
1: It's funny you mentioned that football game. I had met some of the players at OU, the current players at OU, because I was there in the years people try to forget the John Black era <laughs> in the, the mid-'90s yeah. going into the late-'90s. At least it wasn't the Schnellenberger year. No, I was not around for that. I was <laughs> that was before my time. you know. But I didn't know these new crop of players, and so I met a few of them in L.A., and they were just kind of – out I don't know, where was I at? Near a mall or something. And I I told the guys I was like, hey, I used to play on then I was like, oh you, yada yada yada. You gonna win? I need to know. Come on man. You I need to hear some confidence. And they're like, Oh, we're gonna blow them out of the water. Well oh, <laughs> that God. was not the case at all. <laughs> and I was like, maybe we all jinxed the, <laughs> the game that day. But um, that was a real tough one. But Back to what you were saying, this campus is really, it's an interesting place. And I always tell people this about Los Angeles. Los Angeles is what you make of it. It's a big city. It does not move as fast as New York. It moves fast, but in a different way. If New York's at 100 beats per minute, we're probably at 85 beats per minute in terms of how we move. Because it's a car culture here. But uh, USC is kind of a microcosm of LA. And you get, when you're on this campus, you're getting a, a taste of what Los Angeles is about in in some respects.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't put my finger on it when I first got here. Matter of fact, the first time I walked on campus, I want to take back what I said before, I was showing somebody around who was in from out of town and they wanted to see the campus. And I was like, gosh, dang it. I don't want to go see that campus. And I was like, oh, this is nice. This is nice. And I walked into the bookstore. And so this would have been in 2008, 2009, and I walked into the bookstore, and on every freaking television in that damn bookstore, they were showing highlights from that OU-USC championship game. And I got so mad that I left campus. I was so upset. I, I don't, I'm don't. i not that into sports anymore, but at that point in place, I was like, oh, dang it. And then the t- by the time I drove home, I pulled into my parking garage because I lived in Culver City, so not that far. I was like, this is stupid. This is stupid that I cared that much about a game. And because that campus is beautiful and I feel drawn to it. So it wasn't too long after that, that we took over working on the campus ministry over here. And I got to meet you and I got to meet uh, all the people on staff. And it's been a wonderful experience. Is that the get, no, not the ghetto bird, just a truck. All right.
1: We're, we're very close to uh transition street. So it's like the 10 freeways down the street, mm-hmm. one ten, and it's just, Anywhere you go in LA you're going to find busyness. it's just constant
0: cars. <laughs> right, yeah, that's uh I remember when I first moved to LA in 2005, uh we moved in June and the first time I went home was for Christmas, uh home being my parents house in Oklahoma. And at that point my mom and dad lived on 40 acres out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. That first morning I woke I the first night I had to like put on like a noise machine because I was so used to living in LA that I was it, it was the noise was uh a comfort to me by then. The next morning I was like, it is so quiet in Oklahoma. It's like a blanket of quietness. I don't know. I don't, I don't really want to live anywhere else. I kind of, uh, fallen in love with LA and the, and the culture and, and the people. And you know, some, I say I fell in love with the people. I mean, just the title of the podcast, don't be an asshole a spiritual guide comes from the fact that I think everybody's an asshole. So it doesn't matter if it's Oklahoma or L.A. or New York. I, I see somebody and I know deep in their cult, deep in their core they're an asshole, you know. Uh, but the secret to life is to do your best to mitigate that. So that's why this was don't be an asshole, even though, you know, on the lowdown we, we all are, you know. I think we all have
1: moments where we dove into that, some more than others, and I think, I think the goal, at least for how I think, is how do I, as you say, mitigate, how do I work on ways to, to, um, as these feelings are coming up, one for everybody typically is driving in this city, mm-hmm. that I don't go to the extreme. Like I saw the other day, there was a car in front of me, and the car in front of it, um, the lady's turning her finger around and pointing at this person who was honking profusely at this car, And it was so bad that they were just blocking traffic going at each other. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about those a-hole moments, that's definitely one where, like, you go, wow, man,
0: have I ever done that? (laughs) I think everybody has had moments. And it's not just the big moments. It's those little quiet moments in our hearts where we're just like, you. You just look at someone like you. And it's not, that's not love. That's not peace. That's not joy. It's just, it, it's not ours. It's not spilling out on other people. But uh, Freud, uh, the psychologist, psychiatrist, I should say, believed that everybody was depraved. Uh, everyone's, humanity's evil. Everybody's depraved. Everyone wants to sleep with their mother, you know, something crazy. And his protege Young, Carl Jung was like, everybody's pretty much inherently good. And things happen that make them do bad things and they split ways they parted ways on it where where I am like I think it's both I think it's 100% both that everybody has the capacity for great good and everybody has the capacity for great evil and some people seem to have a higher capacity level and I feel that the people that have the highest capacity have a higher capacity for both I mean look at Bill Cosby you know the the dude for his entire life has been nothing but awesome, great, awesome, great in the public eye. And then it turns out he's also proficient at raping people. Right. And I was like, shit, not Bill Cosby. I think we all were. In, you know. From that grew up in that era. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he had the, he had the capacity for wonderful, great, awesome things and the capacity for complete evil. And that's, you know, the extreme version of both. I think we're all, we all have the capacity for good and bad, hope you know. Hopefully, that thing. I think I'm probably I'm probably losing some people at this point. If anyone tuned in, they're like, "Oh shit, he, he mentioned Bill Cosby already." It's episode one, and we're seven minutes in. That's not exactly what I had in mind. I, I, someone told me this guy was funny or something like that. And but I, I do want to you know explore our spiritual sides. You know the 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 part of us that goes, okay, even though we have the capacity for being bad for being evil or just being a jerk. You know, it's not any great evil. What can I do to be better? You know, not the Melania Trump be better, but you know, be better for real, like just in life, you know, you and me, uh, sitting here at this table, we want to be better people ever all the time. Uh, if that means seeking god seeking your spiritual truth speaking whatever that seeking whatever that is i, I just want to follow that you know anyway we we have a lot to talk about because uh, i haven't seen you in a couple of years it's been a while yeah it's been a, been a bit and so the first thing i've noticed is uh you're looking you're looking good man i appreciate it i've Lost about 80 pounds. So it's a lot of weight. Yeah. It's a lot so, of weight, man. That's a uh, yeah. that's a, a small college. That's a that's a freshman.
1: That's a freshman uh <laughs> trying to figure out where to get food from in the dorms. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that that's gone, man. So that that journey, man, I'm following it. What, what I see that you say smash. Is that is that an acronym for something or
1: It didn't start out that way, but mm-hmm. um what happened was um, I grew up a comic book fan. Okay. And so, and I also grew up on the television series with, uh, with Lou Ferrigno as the incredible Hulk before we had all the CG, uh, capability right, yeah. now. Um, but in the comics, uh, and even in the car- cartoons, the Hulk's thing, he would say Hulk smash or smash when he's getting ready to go and to battle or destruct something or just dis- with this great energy move forward. So the whole idea around saying Smash started out as this me saying, I want to work out with great power and great uh, ferocity like the Incredible Hulk would work out. Smash something, I should say. Yeah. But then I, th- I thought long and hard, and I was like, you know what? There's a few folks who were hitting me up and was like, hey, thanks for posting your video today. It got me to go on a walk or got me to just think about eating something different. And so then it turned into stay moving and sweating for health. All right. So yeah. Smash actually has um, a different purpose than it did two years ago when I started this journey. So, um, that, so when I post the videos on an Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, it's to really just keep this movement going. I think the movement is for all of us to kind of be considerate of taking care of these bodies we have because... You know, there's just so many things happening to so many people, and some of it can be preventative if we just do certain things. And as you get older, you got you got to make changes. Your body's you can't eat. What do we eat in college? Waffle House at or (laughs) or what do they have out here? Denny's and IHOP at uh,
0: two two in the morning
1: (laughs) all the time when you're getting older. So yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, you go to Norm's. Oh, yeah.
1: gosh, Norm's. That's another one. All yeah. of that, right? I used to eat all that stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. My favorite place in L.A. It's not open at 2 in the morning. It closes at 4 p.m., unfortunately, is the Griddle Cafe in West Hollywood. Ooh, and they have yeah. pancakes the size of my head, and I got a big head. Yeah. So uh, I haven't been there in a while, man. But Yeah, it's been
1: a few years for me,
0: too. Yeah, that's yeah, good stuff, man. So, um, yeah, uh, just anyone who's going to listen... Um, I don't like my mom uh, and anyone else who might tune into this thing. Follow that that fitness journey because you can tell a lot by where he was, where he is now. And that helps you see the trajectory for where it's going. And uh, I think that's a metaphor for a lot of things. You know, we can look at where we've been, look at where we are, and don't get satisfied. That's a trajectory. You know, we're heading someplace. Where are you as compared to your college playing weight?
1: I'm actually pretty close to that but my college playing weight actually fluctuated okay and it fluctuated because we changed offensive schemes at one point right so it required for me to be in the old days some of the offensive schemes kind of like if you think of the 90s denver broncos they didn't have (laughs) any linemen over 300 pounds right so i went from like at one point i was like 300 and 25, 330 pounds as an offensive lineman and I dropped down to like, like 290, 295 and I think the max I was during that season was 305. They wanted you lighter because of the schemes we were running. Even though we ran the ball a lot, they came up with certain uh, passing schemes and it didn't require uh, and even for running blocking, you want guys that are pretty mobile too. Sometimes, yeah. Not this big maulers like traditional football so it just really had to do with the scheme so but I would say my weight was anywhere probably between close to 300 pounds and no more than 330 pounds and I'm probably close to my playing weight between 300 and 330 pounds and at one point I was over 400 pounds which is um, how I became a diabetic and awesomely my physician took me off one of the medications that's so awesome two weeks ago
0: so, yeah. That's great, man. Yeah, because you were right around, I guess, your maximum whenever I was here, huh?
1: Yeah, I had some tough times, and I can say it really hit me in 2016. I don't know what you feel like when you when you you know you're gonna die, mm-hmm. but I felt like if I don't do something soon, the way I feel right now does not feel like I'm gonna live much longer. And so either I make some changes or something on my body is going to give out because my blood sugar was like going crazy. And I was taking an intense amount of medication just to get it to home. And it was all through negligence, just not eating right. And, you know, you really needing to do, needing to do better with the food. So for me, I was like, I can do something about that. I can't do anything about, you know, Father Time catches up to all of us, but right. I can definitely do something about my
0: exercise and, and mentality around food. Yeah, absolutely. Even me. I mean, I'm a lot smaller. Uh, I'm five foot ten, about two hundred pounds, so I'm not a tiny little person. Mm-hmm. But I know that two fifteen is like my maximum to where heartburn is a huge issue, sleep apnea is a huge issue, face looks all red and splotchy. You know, I mean, I'm just in bad health whenever I'm north of two fifteen and when i'm under 200 i feel amazing but also what feels amazing is drinking milkshakes so i have a um a problem and yeah. but yeah but i know i like whenever i'm like eating clean and and doing everything i'm supposed to be doing i feel a lot better in the long haul so that's uh you know so you're inspiring me too to uh pick up pick up the thing and uh try to you know pick up that rock and move it a little bit so anyway uh i'll up uh, Post a link to uh, to your your pages and stuff, and if anyone wants to follow your your, uh, like I said, I have no. I mean, this is our first episode, so I mean, this could be my mom might tune out after she hears me curse once or twice. So I mean, oh, maybe wow. no one will listen listen to this thing. Oh, you wow. know, um, wow, we've already you know, gone a ways, but I, I want to talk about a lot of things still. So we'll probably have like a three parter with uh, my good buddy Tim here the first thing I want to ask you is what, what was it like growing up in Los Angeles when you grew up in Los Angeles? It's so different than it is now.
1: When I got here, it was, well, I had been coming to Los Angeles all throughout the eighties because my grandmother lived here. Okay. And in those days we called it South central LA. Now they call it South LA. I had basically moved from, I had basically moved from uh, suburbia to here. The way I describe it is like, if you have an animal that was raised in a a zoo or something, and then you just say, hey, we're gonna just put him out in the wild and see how he does now. Mm -hmm. That's kinda how LA was. It was crazy. I mean, you couldn't go two blocks without there being at least one to two street gangs. And you had to know, there's a lot of things that no one knows. And like, I didn't know like all of the things I had, I learned like what colors to or not to wear. Um, I learned quickly that you couldn't go in some neighborhoods wearing anything with red in it or anything blue on it, and mostly blue because there was more uh, crip crip gangs than blood gangs in L.A. And we moved to L.A. about six months uh, before the L.A. riot, the 92 riots would occur. How old were you then? When the riots happened, I was 14. I was 14 years old, so I was just a young high school freshman trying to figure out
0: life. <laughs> hey, it's already
1: the most awkward time of your whole yeah, life. Yeah, so there was a whole lot there. Um, but the tension in L.A. was brewing, and I, when we moved here, I had never been in a place where I heard the LAPD helicopters, which were named the Ghetto Bird. You can hear that in the most early hip-hop, gangster rap, hip-hop music. Or just gunshots every single night, whether they were close or far. So in some respects, it sounded like a third-world country at, at nighttime, and it was kind of scary because you couldn't – I went from being able to, like, ride my bike or skateboard or do whatever I wanted to do to, like, now I couldn't go anywhere without, like, my mom or someone giving me a ride because I wasn't in a gang and I didn't know anybody and it was just it was dangerous. It was – you're now entering the second phase of the crack era mm. where crack cocaine was the, the business that was making all the money on the streets and it was the only real business in L.A. And there was just a lot of tension in uh, different ways in L.A. at that time. Yeah, it uh, it was an intense place, and there was a lot of tension between the Latinos and the African Americans, and then the Korean community, which owned lots of stores throughout South Central L.A. And an incident that happened, I don't quite remember when it happened, but it was before the riots. A young lady named Natasha Harlings, she was about 14, had got into it with a Korean store owner of, like, a liquor store, and she got in a physical altercation with the guy, and as she's walking out of the store after they had been physically uh, going at it, he shoots her in the back of the head and kills her. Oh, crap. Some of the burning that actually happened during the riots was they were burning the Korean stores down because of that. Situation. So you got the tension with the Korean community and the African-American community, the Latino community, African-American community. And what you have is this distress of of social economic challenges and poverty. Yeah. Bottom line. L.A. was a place where a lot of people of color, in particular African-Americans, came to in droves in the 40s, 1940s and 1950s looking for work. They were trying to escape the challenges of poverty in places like Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama and all these places where, one, the racism was in front of your face and crazy. But two, there was just not a lot of opportunities to make money. Yeah. And so coming out here was a, a gold mine. The problem was in the 60s, all of these. Uh, like auto manufacturers that were here started to close, the yeah. Fords and the General Motors. So they left this place destitute with a bunch of people with no hope and opportunity.
0: Yeah, I saw, I'm narrating an audiobook right now about the Vietnam War, like some statistic that had nothing to do with the book was just thrown in the middle talking about how the soldiers themselves weren't really overtly racist about skin color. The draft board definitely was because the fighting grunts in Vietnam, the percentage of black men who were grunts in Vietnam doubled the percentage of the black population in back home. A white kid would get drafted and maybe maybe be in the jungle, maybe be a clerk, whereas uh, double the percentage of blacks at home were in the jungle. So it was a two to one ratio. Wow! It was it's like oh your your draft number came up you're going to be shooting at the VC. Yeah, that's a systemic racism, you know, and it still exists today. Obviously, I get pretty frustrated with a bunch of people who believe that systemic racism doesn't exist anymore. Obviously, I don't feel it the same way that you would feel it because, you know, I'm a white guy from the Midwest. I get better credit just by walking in the door. I tell people all the time that I don't want to give up my privilege. I realize it exists. What I want is everybody to have the same privilege I do. One of the things that didn't drive me out of ministry, I was already, I already had a foot out the door. And I'll talk about that probably ad nauseum at a different time. I remember having a conversation with the minister through Facebook, which is just a wonderful way to have a, a conversation. He, he posted one of those things about how all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And so I did my... Uh, my thing, I have this analogy about Thanksgiving and mashed potatoes. I don't know if we ever talked about it before. No. But no. Um, let's just say last year you were at the kids' table and now you're at the grown-ups' table. That's a big step up. Now you have more options ahead of you. You can, get, you can get your food first. You don't have to wait on someone to bring you the food. You're not separated anymore. You're at the big kids' table, but you're sitting at the foot of the table. Everyone's got turkey. Everyone's got stuffing. Everyone's, you know, and mashed potatoes are going around. You're sitting there and you're going, hey, pass those mashed potatoes. I like mashed potatoes. Okay, sure. Yeah. Everyone likes mashed potatoes. And so they start passing around from the head of the table, you know, and you're like 20 people down. You know, this is like Thanksgiving. This is like cousins, uncles, aunts, everybody is there. Mm -hmm. And uh, mashed potatoes get almost to you. And then the person at the head of the table is like, hey, pass those mashed potatoes over here. And they just start going back around the other way. And you're like, you know, I really would like some mashed potatoes. Oh, yeah, of course. Everyone likes mashed potatoes. And so they start coming the other way. And before they get to you again, someone at the head of the table calls back their mashed potatoes. And so you still don't get your mashed potatoes. And finally, you lose your temper. Hey, I want some mashed potatoes. And everyone's like, whoa, whoa, how dare you? How dare you hit the table? How dare you do this? They say, honey, everybody likes mashed potatoes. And you're like, yeah, but I still don't have my mashed potatoes. And that's what, when people say all lives matter, it's just like that. You finally get your seat at the table, but you're still not getting your freaking mashed potatoes. And everyone's like, well, everyone, obviously everyone likes mashed potatoes. Yeah, I like mashed potatoes. And so the guy comes back at me with, he's frustrated with me because I'm, you know, not buying into the all lives matter because all lives do matter. That's the point. Yeah. All he tries to get spiritual with me. He says, Eric, all lives are equal at the foot of the cross. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, they are. Great point, reverend. Why don't we keep fighting until all lives are equal walking into the Bank of America? And that's the last time I ever talked to that guy. I mean, Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I'm right, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and I don't understand the struggle, obviously, but I feel like that's kind of how the struggle looks. It's like you're sitting at the table and people are telling you you can have it because every it's America it's a wonderful country it's great but they're not giving your your damn mashed potatoes you know and so man, it's I know that's you know all analogies fall apart eventually um but that's I, kind of how I view it I think an, uh, th- that's a great analogy I might borrow that one from you
1: because that that one really broke it down for me um another one that i I heard is imagine you know you see all these folks who say save the dolphins mm-hmm or dolphin lives matter would be another way of saying that, right? Right. Well, when they're saying that, they're not saying that the, the sharks or the seals or the otters don't matter. They're saying that we may just need to pay a little more attention to these dolphins right now because something is happening to them at a rate that could be detrimental to them and something's happening that is detrimental to them in the immediate. Yeah. And so it's not saying that the others don't matter. They absolutely matter. It's simply saying that something needs to change so that these um, dolphins matter in the same way that you are treating these other um, uh, otters or seals or sharks or uh, whatever it may be in the ocean. And so that is kind of what the argument of the folks who are saying black lives matter is the problem is that argument has been lost in this argument someone made up one day saying well all lives matter why are you saying only black lives matter that's not what they're saying right they're saying that the they feel like the black lives don't matter with the all lives we want all lives to matter at the same equal space but that argument has been lost because people are saying, are taking it and creating a narrative that's not actually the narrative and it's hijacking the narrative it's actually when i sit back and i look at it as someone who researches and, and tries to like really look at all of the arguments before I start like drawing conclusions I can see how someone on the other side could feel that way and especially with the landscape of media right now you if you have stories being told to you over and over again yeah and that's what your brain is hearing it's like a, a record that you've heard a bunch of times eventually it's going to be stuck in there and it could become your story
0: and that's how social yeah your story social media, only gives you the things that you're used to seeing. You like a few things, next thing you know, that's the only stories you see. You know, so people see things from certain news outlets or certain websites or certain people in their news feed, and that's all they're seeing. They're not seeing anything else. And so there's no balance there. It's just, it's frustrating. They're not even willfully ignorant, but it's there's just something that's not adding up. It's not the dots aren't connecting. You know, I don't think there's been a day
1: that I've been alive and I've been here over 40 years. I don't think there's been a day that I've been alive in my awareness since I was probably a toddler where I felt that the folks in power who were majority white males would look at somebody that looked like me and think that my life really mattered. Man, I I can't say... I honestly feel like if I were to be shot or killed, I would be looked at. Even as hard as I've worked, oh, it's just another black man. There's been this culture that's been created, and it started in slavery in this country, where someone that looks like me, life, does not matter as much as someone who's comes here from European descent. That's the story that's been told. It's not a true story, but it's a story that's been told. And when you... The idea and the word racism is institutional. Mm-hmm. It, it, so there's a difference between prejudice and racism. And oh, that yeah. gets confused. And s- since the institutions control things, I think that's what a lot of folks don't understand, is that most of the time, black folks, and in particular, if someone like me, a black man, is just wondering, when I walk in the room, will I be given any opportunity? And once you know that you are, it kind of takes all the stress off, but that's every single door that you walk in. Right. The bank, the grocery store, the restaurant, etc. And because the media paints a certain picture, off of certain things that happen. And there's a whole story behind that. Oh, the gangbangers or oh, they're they're not to be trusted. They're deceitful. They're thugs. They're robbers. They're this or that. Well, that's not the true story. And some of the stuff that folks are saying, they need to look at the history of things. If people are caught up in socioeconomically challenged places, there's a high chance that crime and other things are going to hit a large pop and part of the population. And they say things like, Look at all the murders happening. They're just killing each other. Well, hell, they don't. They're only surrounded by each other. Who else are they <laughs> going to commit these crimes against? They're not in Beverly Hills doing it. They're doing it in South L.A. Yeah.
0: When when I was thinking about hitting the table, demanding my mashed potatoes, and then everyone freaking out, the thing that hit my head was Baltimore. You know, because I grew up. I keep saying, you know, my wife is going to kill me if she keeps hearing this. I grew up in Oklahoma in the eighties. In the in the nineties, I started seeing some things, and I was, in my 20s, I was like, why are they destroying property? Why?" And th- I think a lot of people are still there. I finally crossed a threshold, especially with Baltimore, because even then, I was like, yeah, there's there's injustice, these things shouldn't be happening, but why are they destroying stuff? And then I was sitting down with a friend of mine, and he told me, what he thought. And it just made so much sense to me uh, watching this riot happen. um, A riot might not be the right word, but um, this thing that was happening in Baltimore thing is for weeks leading up to that, they were doing peaceful protests and nobody paid any attention. It wasn't until someone slapped the table and demanded some mashed potatoes that the news was like, Oh, there's something happening in Baltimore. Maybe we should give these guys some mashed potatoes. You can do everything the right way, you know, and I get so sick of people who look like me saying, well, they should, you know, they should do it the way Martin Luther King Jr. did it. Peaceful. Well, they shot his ass. They if- confused Dr. King as this,
1: this they turned Dr. King into something he was not. Mm-hmm. Don't confuse his idea of not using guns that he wasn't very radical. Dr. King was more radical than Malcolm X. If you really studied him, and the difference between what is happening now and Dr. King's era is it was a different time and a different organization was needed at the time. There were still people who were just as ready to fight in a more aggressive way in terms of the physical part. But Dr. King had folks, including himself, Sitting at lunch counters and refusing to move or uh, getting on buses and taking rides through areas where your life was in danger or standing in the face of the enemy who's holding a gun on the other side and also breaking the laws, as you saw in Selma, uh, of which were racist laws d- during the Jim Crow era. So they confuse that and they go back to 1963 when he made a speech, I have a dream, and they erase everything else that he said.
0: Right. And that's, that's right. He broke laws for the greater good. And we got people now who are looking at laws like, well, these people are breaking the law. Well, there's always been bad laws and bad laws don't change until someone says enough. Mm -hmm. These laws don't help anybody. These laws are racist. These laws are evil. These laws are immoral. Whether it has to do with race or not, immoral and wrong laws are immoral and wrong. You got to stand up and you have to break that law. And so when people are like, well, that guy shouldn't be taking a knee. He's dis- you know, he shouldn't be taking a knee. Oh, what are you wanting to do? He's being more peaceful than anything I've ever seen ever. Like like you said, he was so radical. Um, and he also talking going back to the capacity for good and evil, we've made him a patron saint, but he did bad things as well. And as soon as anyone on the conservative evangelical white side of the spectrum. hears about like the affairs and things he had. Well, then they want to like demonize the man. I'm like, you cannot throw out the good works because of a couple of bad things either. So, um, but he had a great capacity for good. He was a man who did wonderful things, but the systematic racism of the day still murdered him. If you can't go around looking at people who are trying to create change and go like, well, you should do it like that guy. It's like, well, he got killed. You know, just like uh, the the guy, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now, who who told the police in the car that he had a gun, and they shot him. And his girlfriend filmed the whole thing. And Philando Castile is his name. Castile. All of it broke my heart from Ferguson all the way till what's happening now. But that thing right there with Philando, I was like, oh my God, how can something like that happen? You know, he's like, hey, he didn't pull it. He didn't say, oh, I got this, you know, and pulled it out. You know, like, oh, I got a gun. He was like, I want to let you know I'm licensed to carry a firearm and I have one in the car because they always ask, do you have a weapon? He could have just said no. But he said, yes, I do. I have a license to carry. And he got shot for his trouble. There's people who I grew up with whom I love and respect who believe that systemic racism no longer exists. It existed in the 60s, but it doesn't exist now. And they're very smart about the way they uh, describe their argument. But just because they moved from the kids' table to the grown-ups' table, they still ain't getting their mashed potatoes in the 50s and 60s. Everyone had to sit at the kids' table. It doesn't mean systemic racism is over. It's easy to think
1: that because you have a media that wants to paint a certain picture. They tell a certain story, and that story then gets bought. Mm-hmm. You have sensationalized media that doesn't cover all sides of the media. They cover what they want to cover and they tell the story they want to t- tell. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't a the case then uh, MSNBC, Fox News or any of these other outlets wouldn't have a platform. Um, the news media covers the, the media um, depending upon the network based on what their bottom line is because all of these companies are owned by a CEO who has a business bottom line. It's yeah. not about this, this is not 1960s and Dragnet and the detective saying just the facts or an inverted pyramid style of reporting. And I want to tell people they may think it's a long time ago. But how much have we healed when I saw something yesterday that said started with the black code law that was started in 1865 when all of a sudden slavery was supposed to end. In 1922, they were giving out licenses issued in the state of Missouri, very close to Oklahoma which provided the holder the legal right to hunt and kill African-Americans. The name of that license was the State of Missouri N-Word uh, Hunting License, like they were Animal Game. So this was in 1922. This is a little less than 100 years ago. And we've progressed. But all of a sudden, in less than 100 years, we're all supposed to be kumbaya, and no one that looks um, African-American or a person of color is, is – is, they don 't have any problems anymore, everything's equal footing. In less than a hundred years, we're going to solve the challenges left over of chattel slavery in America, violent slavery in America, and that everything's Kumbaya. That is what the biggest problem is, is that mm-hmm. no one wants to deal with America's ugly history, and until we look it in the eyes and start to heal together, it's going to be
0: some of the same things. It felt like after the ninety two riots, and I said this actually uh, in one of the O R L religious leaders meetings, that it felt like people just stuck a big band aid on racism, and like, oh, we solved it, it's over, it's done. But no one ever irrigated the wound, no one ever took the bandage off and cleaned it until like, and then in Ferguson and everything that's happened since then, it's like the whole world just exploded. I mean, things have been happening obviously, but it wasn't national news. People weren't forced to look at it. And then all of a sudden, people are forced to look at it again for the first time in a long time. And it's like it never went anywhere. You put a bandage over a dirty wound.
1: Yeah, it, by the way, um, he mentioned our office here at USC, the Office of Religious Life, also known as the ORL. Some of the great work that some of the folks are doing here is there are some clergy folks and some folks not in clergy who are working together to try to see what they could do, at least from the perspective of a college campus, to try to assist the students who are dealing with all of the stressors of the outside world, some of which we're talking about today. Um, And I'll just address what you said about a Band-Aid. Well, we know a Band-Aid is only a temporary assistance to something that really needs true healing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with a bandaid, you need to take it off. It needs to be right in the, that, that injury, that cut needs to be right in the sun and get some, some of that uh, oxygen and sunlight to really help it to, to mend, which means you have to put it right in the, in the light, right in the eyes of, of, of that, which can help it. We've been band-aiding things in this country since its inception and it's time to take some of those band-aids off That's right. and look each other in the eyes. And we need to have some real honest conversations and stop saying it's not my problem or what I see a lot of is the blame game. I hate to quote Jesse the body Ventura <laughs> for a lo- number of reasons I won't talk about on here, <laughs> But uh, I will just say he said something that was really interesting and it caught my ears. He said, our partisan system in this country is acting like street level gangs. You have he called them the bloodlickens and the democrips, <laughs> and they're both blaming each other for stuff. Sometimes one is blaming the other more, and sometimes the other one may be rightfully so for something that's happening. But they're not having real conversations, and it doesn't sound very democratic the way they're behaving. And the leadership in in some of these groups you 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 got to challenge what's happening right now and definitely and I'm not saying trying to go on down some blame the republicans or the democrats oh, I'm no, just simply yeah. saying this is our this is the the two main groups the two main parties in our country and they have a lot to do with all the decisions made including the stuff we're talking about now around um race relations or just unity of man or just some people say there's no unity of man because of the stuff you talk about on this show about people being Uh, pricks or a-holes um but yeah maybe we don't get along about everything but we can agree to disagree and just kind of figure out how do we don't Mm -hmm. drive each other where we want to choke somebody or hit somebody or just be crazy and we need to be educated like I saw a video the other day this man who this lady had a permit at a park in Chicago and she was wearing a Puerto Rico shirt yeah I saw that he's like flipping out about that he's intoxicated and he's not educated that Puerto Rico is a part of the United States. Yeah. They have a governor. Hello. And he, he, and whether she, she was wearing a Puerto Rico or a Mexico shirt, so what? This is this land is a land of people who have – of immigrants. Yeah. Whether it's several generations back for you or, in my case, probably my ancestry, I wouldn't say it was immigrants. They were kind of forced here. Yeah. But the point is we're all here together and we got to yeah. figure that out
0: that's anger inducing to see that kind of just hatred for no reason or I mean any hatred. I cannot stand it. hell I've been with that new Mr. Rogers movie coming out. I've just been like watching Mr. Rogers quotes and, oh, and yeah. video clips all yeah. the time and uh, and this is gonna you know make me sound when I was a kid I, I didn't really like the Mr. Rogers show when I was a little kid. Mm, it, interesting. it freaked me out um, <laughs> I I, can liked, see that. I liked Mr. Rogers. But when he went to never uh, the pretend land or whatever it's called the make pub, believe the make believe yeah. land yeah when the train went in and the music went weird and uh, I don't know man I, I got freaked out by that and then it went back to Mister Rogers I'm like okay this guy's cool <laughs> you know I'm like all right this this guy's cool but I didn't watch the show a lot I got three boys who I'm like you guys need Mister Rogers right now right. like we need Mister Rogers more than ever right uh, right now in this world. Yeah, you grew up in what used to be called South Central, and then you made your way to uh, the Fruited Plains of Oklahoma as a college sophomore, junior. Uh, I actually
1: got there, it was after the football season, but it was the second half of my sophomore year of college. Okay. I I got there early. I wanted to get there for spring ball and get prepared uh, for the upcoming season. At that time, I was a pretty highly touted, Junior college or community college, as we say now, uh, recruit from Santa Monica. So I went from Santa Monica College in the beach city of Los Angeles, which you know if you've been here. There's a very distinct difference between <laughs> Santa Monica <laughs> and Norman, Oklahoma. Probably the whitest place you've ever been. What was that like? It was complete culture shock and it took me a while to get used to it. What I had to really, I used to call Norman Mayberry. Because it was like, what is this place? Like, I had folks not locking their doors to their cars or their houses. And you would never think of doing that in L.A. I don't know if they're still doing that in Oklahoma now, but that was back then. And the pace of life was like, I think I said earlier in New York is like, if it's 100 beats per minute, in terms of like, we're talking audio stuff now. L.A. was 85 beats per minute. Oklahoma was like... 20 beats per minute in terms of the pace of life. Yeah. When and I, I, yeah, I wasn't used to like the Bible belt too, where like a bunch of stuff was closed on Sunday, except for like Sonic. Yeah. <laughs> I never, first of all, I'd never been to a place where you drive up and then you talk into the machine and then they'd walk out and give you food. We didn't have that, at least where I lived in LA at the time I was growing up. Well, they didn't want to walk outside. Or this gigantic store that's like all over now, but back then we didn't have it super walmart i even heard of walmart before we didn't have those stores out here i was like wait you can buy like you can buy like food and then you can get like hunting uh stuff and then you can get like gear getting tired everything is here like you i mean it was like i guess like costco slash target fused together back then yeah (laughs) and it was it was just so different I mean, it wasn't like Chicago, but it got cold and there was snow on the ground. and The, the weather I mean, whether it be when I got there it was really, really cold, mm-hmm. and then as time went on, it started to heat up and there was humidity. Yeah. so we don't have the humidity, it's more of a drier climate in LA. Rare that it gets humid here, and yeah. so I had to adjust to that. And just stuff that was weird and not normal to me like you go in the bank. And the lady's like, hey, how you doing? How's your day? She so said, want to talk to you. People want to talk to you at a restaurant. I was like, where am I at? Because in L.A., no one does that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this. So L.A. might sound like a strange, odd place to some of your folks if they're listening in Oklahoma. But I was just going through culture shock. But you learn to adjust when you when you stay somewhere for a while. I think after two months, I started to adjust to, to Oklahoma. I mean, not that I became an Oklahoman, but I... Realize that this place is really, really flat mm-hmm. and it's really, really quiet mm-hmm.
0: And other than football games or basketball yeah. games. <laughs> so that's what it is. Well, I mean, the atmosphere for a football game there, as you well know, the town is about 100,000 people, give or take. The stadium seats about 100,000 people, give or take. The town is still full. The stadium is full. Then there's another 50,000 people tailgating around the stadium. So like starting like Thursday, yeah, <laughs> for Saturday yeah. game. It's a state of like three and a half million people. So thirty percent of the entire state is in a town of a hundred thousand people yeah. every Saturday for home games in in the fall. I always say like I I wouldn't want to live in Oklahoma in the summer. Hot and humid, it sucks. The wintertime, you don't get beautiful cold weather. You just get bitter cold weather, wind chills like below zero, ice. Mm-hmm. Um, in the springtime it's nothing but you. Know, It's tornado season. Mm -hmm. It happens every year. It's not unpredictable. It's tornado season. So fall, football season. Some people, they summer in the Hamptons, winter in Florida, whatever. I would fall or autumn in Oklahoma if I could afford just to have multiple homes. You know, go there, just live there from uh, October 1st to Christmas and then then get back to L.A., you know? Yeah.
1: You know, I'll say this. I love how kind and friendly everyone was but i definitely saw a different kind of challenge in terms of when we talk about race and race relations yeah and it was more it wasn't as heavy as what you see in like mississippi but i had never seen a confederate flag in person until i moved to oklahoma and in fact my teammate had a confederate flag in his living room and he was my next door neighbor in my apartment building and at first I was so dense I didn't even know what it was cuz I c- can't say that I had a I was a great student in school in those days and studied US history so well I didn't learn what it was until my dad came to visit me and my roommate I mean not my roommate my teammate had his door open and you could see the confederate flag in the living room and he went up to shake my dad's hand and my dad was kind of acting awkward. Well, my dad grew up in Grenada, Mississippi, in between Memphis, Tennessee, and Jackson, Mississippi, in the 50s and 60s. So you can imagine what's right. going on in his mind. My dad pulled me to the side, and he said, do you not know what that is, son? I said, oh, it's a flag, like, on the Dukes of Hazard car, and it's from his hometown. It, like, represents him. He, so I just got a 15-minute lecture on
0: the history of the yeah. Confederate flag, and I was like... That was my introduction to Oklahoma. Yeah, and then I grew up not thinking anything about it because it didn't affect me. And that's – when I say people are assholes, I don't mean that everybody is out to get anybody, but we're just selfish and we don't think about things that don't affect us. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I used to love the Dukes of Hazard, Them Duke boys, you know, they're in a heap of mess trouble now. We loved them here in L.A. too. And it – there are still people that I know who, who fly the Confederate flag, but until you meet somebody who that has a visceral effect, like it had on your father, you don't realize that it's not just a token of culture. Mm-hmm. Now to these guys, I, they're not overtly racist. They're just not all of them. Anyway, some of them might be, you know, I'm, I'm not going to paint with a broad brush, Yeah. but growing up, the people I knew that had Confederate flag wallets, they weren't racist people. They were just from the South. And nobody ever said, hey, you know what? That that really makes me uncomfortable. I, I watch YouTube videos a lot of, co- of comedy because I, I love comedy. It's one of my favorite things. And I used to watch those uh, roasts from the... The sixties, you mm-hmm. know, the with Sammy Davis Jr. and people, and people said all sorts of weird racist things, yeah. you know, to Sammy Davis Jr. and he just laugh his head off. And then the comments from older white people are like, "See, back in the day, you could make jokes about anything, and people didn't get offended." He just laughed at it. What was he going to do? That was yeah, his choice. career, that was yeah. his life. You know, if he didn't just let the water roll off his back, he didn't have the didn't have the permission to say, you know, what I think that's offensive. Now, people are standing up. Women are standing up. Men are standing up. Black men are standing up. And it took a little longer, but Asian men are like, you know what? It's not funny to say that we all know kung fu and are good at math, you know, to hold your eyes up and make, you know, squinty, you know, that's racist. That's stupid. And and people still do that. And it's not good. It's not funny. People didn't have the, like, I'm just going to use permission right now. To stand up and say, I didn't like, I don't like that. And if somebody would do that, the, the, like if that kid, because that's what he was, was a kid. If someone would have told him, Hey, that's really kind of offensive. If he was really friends with people of, of any other colors, he would be like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. I think that's how people who are not overtly racist, who grow up with racist tokens would respond. Now, people who have actual racist things going on in their heads will be like, nah, screw you guys. You know, this is culture. It's it's culture, not hate. You know, the statues, all this stuff. And, you know, I think art still needs to stand because it reminds us of where we went wrong and reflects a culture that used to be. It doesn't have to be celebrated. It just needs to still exist, I think.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whether it's the music or those statues. They don't have to be in the park, you know, <laughs> but um, – yeah. Is I think instead of destroying them, you make a monument of this is where we went wrong. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I could be wrong. That's one thing about turning. I'm 43 years old now. In my 20s, I thought I was right about everything. We all did. <laughs> if I believed it, you still think what you believe is right. But I was so right. I believe what I believe because it's right. When I was in my 30s, I was like, I don't know. I don't want to say anything publicly. I don't want anything to be misinterpreted. I don't want anything to come back on me. I don't want to say something that's wrong and change my mind later and have someone think that I was wrong. Now I invite it so much. I'm going to say stuff that I believe, and then halfway out of my mouth I'll be like, oh, I don't know if I actually believe that. I, I just I, I want to work out my belief system almost publicly at this point. Where I'm like, oh, this is what I think. And someone's like, oh, I don't think that's right. I'm like, oh, hmm, maybe you're right. Because I go into almost every situation assuming I'm wrong now because I know how little I know. And so if somebody else knows something I don't, well, that fills in a gap that I have. I'll go in with a strong argument, but if someone has something to say that makes sense to me, I've never been more open to being wrong in my life than I am right now which is an interesting place to be for someone who is known as being argumentative. All right, let's take a hard left turn here. And uh, are you still doing uh, the teaching music at Northridge? So I am. I was teaching a
1: hip-hop class at, at CSUN. Currently, I'm not teaching that class. I also started teaching a history of basically a history of African-Americans in film. Oh wow. Um we offered that the last couple semesters but um they're going to continue with the class in the fall. I'm not going to be teaching it. I'm actually going to be teaching at Santa Monica College. I teach uh, still a different film class, kind of like a mainstream intro to film, and I teach about uh intro to media. So we cover a lot of the things we're talking about will come up in different things that we discuss in that the intro to media class. Um but the I'm actually in the fall I'm creating as we speak, a sports focus on the intro to media. So we're going to cover everything from the different things athletes are going through Hmm. off the court or off the field to what it is like to... Try to
0: start a channel or a
1: network or work on a sports movie. So we'll cover all those
0: topics. Oh, man, I might have to uh, crash that course a little bit. It should be fun. The official way to say I'm not going to pay for your course is to audit it. (laughs) (laughs) I always tell folks, if you want to come by and hang out, come by. Let's do it. All right. So one thing I always want to ask everybody, because to me, music is super spiritual uh, because I, I love art. All art. And I think it has a place in our culture because it defines our culture. But music is the most visceral thing. And I I say it's the most surface form of art, not in shallow, but in actual more depth. Like it comes from the very core of your being all the way to the surface of your skin. You scratch it. It's like there. You know, that's what I mean by surface. It's the most visceral way to tap into emotional art to me is music. I'm always going to talk about music. I'm passionate about music. But what I want the question, the reason why I'm setting up this question so long is because this is episode one. I'm going to ask everybody to tell me about a song that always takes you back to the same memory. Like every time you hear this song, you think of this same thing, and then we'll talk about the song and we'll talk about that memory. So do you have anything like that? Or am I weird? Because I have like dozens of songs that take me to a specific place. That I'll always that's, I'll always at least think of this one thing. Are there any songs like that or am I just like a freak? There's so many
1: and so many memories I have from childhood. But a song that probably made the greatest impact on me at a very important time is A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cook. Oh man. And that's an older song that was first released when my mother was a teenager in the sixties. But that song, I first heard it in Spike Lee's incarnation in his directorial, not debut, but masterpiece of the Malcolm X film that came out in 1992 starring Denzel Washington, a great actor. No, it's a great movie. And so towards the end of this movie, A Change Is Gonna Come is a song that is being played as you see Malcolm X portrayed by Denzel Washington in this like, place where he's getting ready to be assassinated and he knew this there's a lot of heaviness in what they were trying to do towards um, the power and the civil rights movement and he was under heavy heat from all sides including the group he used to be a part of the nation of Islam and so this song uh the part that what it really did for me is it talks about all the challenges that are going on but he keeps saying I know and I believe I'm paraphrasing here. Sam Cooke is saying a change is going to come, like something better is to come. And that was so important for me because when I heard it, it was post-L.A. riots. Hmm. And I'm living in this ghetto that now in parts of it looks like a third world country because everything was burnt down. And L.A. needed to heal. And the gang violence, although it was temporary, stopped for a while because a peace treaty was created between the Bloods and the Crips because the city promised jobs and to change things. That didn't last very long because a lot of that was not true that they said they were going to do. But the song meant something to me because it it was hopeful that a change is going to come. And that I kind of felt like how uh, Cuba Goodings Jr. Trey felt in Boys in the Hood. The the John Singleton movie came out in 91, a year before, I think, Malcolm X. I was saying to myself, I got to get out of L.A. And a change is going to come. Impacted me because it was around that time that football really started to pick up, and I was like, "This is my way out." And that song and football kind of were coming together at the same time, and I was like, "If I get really good at this, a change is gonna come." All right.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. I what the one I was thinking of is definitely on a lighter note than that because I have songs that take me back to high school. I have songs that take me back to college. I have songs that take me back to. Like my first ministry job, you know, as soon as I hear it, I'm there for even a split second. But the thing that I thought of today, driving here, it's like what song always brings up the same memory is the David Bowie song, Let's Dance. That's a great song. Yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan playing guitar on that song. Uh, Stevie Ray was, he's who I consider to be the greatest guitar player who ever strapped one on. He's not my favorite guitar player. That's David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. But Stevie Ray Vaughan, he... He angers me. He's so good. You know, he makes me want to break my guitar, not get better at guitar. That's how good Stevie Ray Vaughan is. It's like he's a man possessed. And the solo was amazing. But the song is good. I like it. It's, it's my go-to karaoke tune. My mom bought that album on vinyl when it came out in, what, 80, 81, and brought it home and put it on and started doing these weird-looking exercises <laughs> um, she laid on her back and stuck her feet in the air and started doing what's called the like the the inverted bicycle. And oh gosh, I remember all of that. And then all those exercise videos came out around. Yeah, it. the Jane Fonda uh, <laughs> aerobic videos yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my mom was only eighteen when I was born, so she was only twenty, uh, like twenty four. Oh wow! At that point, I was six or seven years old. She was like twenty four years old, so she had like all sorts of energy and stuff. I got kids about that same age now, but I'm 43 and I have no energy. You know, I'm like, I can't even lay on my back, much less do an inverted bicycle to let's Mm -hmm. dance. But every time I hear that song, I, at least for a moment, think about that moment in our living room, in our apartment, uh, how, how the living room looked, how the Mm -hmm. couch looked, how she was, you know, I thought she looked so silly on the floor, but it was fun. You know, it was, it's a good memory and it's important to hang on to those good memories, you know. And those are the things that last. It's easier to hold on to bad memories. Yeah. It's easier to hold on to somebody doing you wrong. But it's more important to hold on to the good things and the good times. Right.
1: I, you know, I want to share one other one with you. you Maybe I'm okay. to use this one instead of the other one I told you. It's up to you. No, no. I'll uh, just use the, but just... I, I the, the very first song that I heard that, like, really was when I realized I loved music Was in 1983, and it was the Motown 25 uh, anniversary special on TV. Oh, man. And it was the one a lot of folks remember. I see this guy wearing this glittery glove and these these penny loafers with these shiny glittery socks and this very much so black, shiny, I don't even know what the material was jacket named Michael Jackson. And I didn't even really know who he was. Because I really wasn't a big music listener before that. And when he did... First, that he was with his brothers and they were doing some of the Jackson 5 songs. But then they left the stage and he did Billie Jean. Mm-hmm. And he did the Moonwalk, which was actually, I didn't know at the time, the backslide from these tap dancers in the 1950s. And someone had taught him the Moonwalk. And he was had fused all of these dance moves together and how fluid he was moving. And even though I didn't know what the song was really about at that time, I remember my whole family was sitting in the room and my grandfather, who could care less about pop music, you know, World War II vet, is sitting there watching him move and he's excited like he's wa- like he would get when he was watching the horse races. Mm. And it's just this memory of just like pure joy during an interesting time. And Michael Jackson, I know people want to argue this now. I'm like, there's, I've never, I don't think there's been any performer that's greater than that guy when it comes to just singing and performance art. Like, you can argue whether you like his music or not, but in terms of performer, name one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Although, at that point in place, the Beatles' Let It Be was my absolute favorite album because my dad already had it. And I wore it out. Thriller was the first album I ever purchased with my own money. Wow. Went out, got it on vinyl, pulling weeds. And the album was like seven bucks back then. Maybe even cheaper, you know, after it's been in the store for a little while. But yeah, that was the first album I ever bought with my own money was Thriller by Michael Jackson. Yeah, I I loved that thing. I loved, what was the song on there that I love so much? Uh, Beat It. I yeah. freaking love that song, man. Yeah, everybody, yeah. Yeah, yeah that that song. was my jam right there. Yeah. Beat it. Yeah. I'm going to take you back uh, a little bit. We're going to maybe go back, backtrack a little bit on the race stuff. But I don't know if you remember a conversation we had. Oh, i have only been here like a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I was talking about I wanted to buy a house near here. And so I can invite students over and have cookouts and, right. and all this stuff. And I wanted to live closer to campus and we just wanted to own a home and we still haven't done that. Right. And I had found a house I really liked in Lamart Park uh-huh. and it was like $400,000. And I remember to this day, you were like, Eric, you cannot live in Lamart Park. You can't do it, man. And I was like, why not? And. And like I said before, I'm 5'10", 200 pounds, and you're 6'6", and at yeah. that point you're like 390. Yeah, you're like, up there. Yeah. You're like, I wouldn't even walk around in Lamar Park. I don't feel comfortable there. It's crypt territory, man. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. So I just dropped it. I'm like, I don't want to live somewhere where my friend who's three times larger than me doesn't feel safe walking around. I got two small kids and, you know, a little wife. And so I was like, ah. All right, damn, because these houses are, are good size and they're cheap, which there's a reason for that. But then like five years later, you walked up to me and like, Eric, you know what I saw in Lamar Park the other day? White people. <laughs> I felt bad that I told you that, actually.
1: I didn't know, though. I was speaking of Lamar Park that I knew from my high school years. And what I started to realize is people were moving into neighborhoods and the gangs that once kind of festered in these neighborhoods, while there were remnants of them there, it wasn't like it was before. So the picture I saw of Lamert Park was the place that I got jumped in and beat up in right. and got my stuff taken. I, the thing is, it still exists here. Well, they're not there in the way they were before. For right. one, a lot of those guys, either they got older, mm-hmm. they went to jail, or they moved out. Yeah. And they started moving out the laws changed too you couldn't hang out in groups of 3 or 4 or 5 like you used to you get arrested right away wow whether you were doing something or not so that alone and it's a different time now the crimes you could commit in the 90s you can't even do now everybody got a camera yeah you know, you're not going to walk up and just rob somebody <laughs> Somebody like right. filming it. It's just, so, like, those kind of the petty crimes that they were doing back then, known as in the dope sales, I mean, you might get caught on camera doing that. So, it's like you got to be really discreet to live that life now.
0: Right. I have a, a joke I've been working on. Uh, the punchline or the setup, I haven't even decided yet, is that uh, hipsters are basically the Marine Corps of gentrification. They're always the first into, like, these really bad neighborhoods or whatever. And before you know it, they've taken over. And the thing is, and I'm not talking about, like, this new breed of hipster, like, that they're, like, software engineers, but they have handlebar mustaches and cool clothes. Yeah. I'm talking about artists who they're living 10 in a loft because it's the only place they can afford. Right. But before long, in comes the little coffee shop, in comes the things they want because they're there. You know, and the neighborhood starts changing gradually. Now it's like corporate gentrification. Gentrification in uh, like Brooklyn and gentrification in the arts district here in L.A. happened kind of in, a, in an organic fashion. Now you have it's like software companies that are like, well, we're going to buy up this area and gentrify it. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not a fan of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of what's happening in Inglewood right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that there's a stadium coming in. I love that there's going to be uh, a lot of things there. But without rent control. Uh, people are losing their places. People are being forced out, mm-hmm. and if they're renting, like so many people in LAR, they're just out of luck. I uh, talked to one lady. She bought a condo or a small house there like five, six years ago for four hundred thousand dollars, and the developers came in and just said, "We're going to give you one point four million dollars. Just leave." You know, and she's like, "Sure, yeah." She just took it and, and left because she just made a million dollars. But people renting, people who have been there for twenty-five years, because Inglewood has been Inglewood. Mm-hmm. They're going to be out on the street. You know, they're going to have to move to Palmdale. Yeah. And no offense, Palmdale, but I don't want to live in Palmdale.
1: Well, not if you – it doesn't make sense if you work over this way. Yeah. And, I mean, if you want to move out there, that's one thing. But if you're being forced to move somewhere, that's another thing. And that's what's – I mean, to be honest with you, there would be no skid row and people trying to – Figure out what to do with the homeless population. If it wasn't for the um, the good folks down there, and then the rescue missions, they would turn that all into um, high rise apartments and charge ridiculous amounts and lofts and charge ridiculous amounts of money. That's ultimately what a lot of folks want to do. Developers want to do.
0: Yeah, I mean originally, like with the arts district and a lot of the places, Highland Park or uh, Silver Lake or things like that, you had what you call real hipsters. You know, they moved in because it was cheap, not because it was cool. Right. Now people are moving to places because it's cool. It feels different. So, yeah, I don't really know what to make of that. I don't know how to solve big problems at a table. Well, I think I'm going to resist diving full head into politics in this podcast. We've been going an hour and 20 minutes already. I think we've got quite a bit. Yeah. But I want to end this edition of the podcast with the question, the big question. The spiritual guide question. I've never seen the world more divided than it is now, whether you're on the, especially America, I've never seen America more divided than it is right now. Um, because of the seismic, uh, shift that happened in 2016, I always, I was a, uh, a right leaning, moderate independent, but no, it's like now nobody can lean one way or the other. There was like this big crack that happened in November of 2016, and people had to jump to one side or the other, it felt like. So this is just a big setup, but in spite of the fact that the world feels so segmented, feels so divided, and people are so scared right now, and there's science, and there's all of these things. You know, the world is just moving a million miles an hour away from spirituality. Why do you maintain or keep leaning into faith or spirituality or what keeps you coming back? Good question. In my research, the
1: purpose of religion has been lost in something that I call its nemesis, dogma. These tenets or these beliefs that certain individuals have come up with that they create as, they're really opinions. They're not fact-based. They're opinions that they can talk very smoothly or swiftly or with great articulation around them being truths if they can convince another, a, a large amount of people to believe it. They use this dogma, this rhetoric to what they argue is to bring people to a truth or a justice. But what they're actually doing is dividing or pushing folks away. If you don't believe me, the research we do, do here at the Office of Religious Life, the dean of religious life who you know, Varun Sony. And his research told me this. Around 1950, 2% of Americans said they were, they didn't say uh, spiritual at that time, that they weren't really religious, okay? We use the word spiritual but not religious in today's terms. That was in 1950, 2% of Americans. The research studies show now that about 34% of Americans are saying that they're not religious and they use the term spiritual but not religious. And it's 46% among college students age 18 to 22, 46, almost 50%. There was a research study that the LA Times did uh, a few years back, and it was that 87% of college students are moving, 87%, almost 100%, are moving away from their parents' original religious experience. So it doesn't mean that they're leaving a the religion. They're just moving away from whatever the, that ideal is that the parents were, were a part of, it is my research and belief and my colleagues that it has to do with dogma and that we got away from this idea that religion was there to kind of help somebody bring some peace, some solace, some, some balance and some unity um, to an unbalanced situation happening around them. And now I know there's a lot of argument that people say, well, well, the, the Bible says this and the Quran says this and this, you know, the Bhagavad Gita says this, but if you, have done the research, you kind of see that these messages you get, whether it be you believe um, in Jesus Christ as a Christian or uh, some of the messages of the one who's deemed the prophet Muhammad or the Hindu experience with um, Krishna, whatever it is. It is my belief that the purpose of these religions and the majority of this country is Christian. The purpose of, of The the Christ-like message was to bring people together in in love. Dr. Martin Luther King said once in 1968, I believe it was, before he was assassinated, he said, Jesus taught us how to love. He didn't tell us that we had to like everything, but Mm -hmm. we still have to love. And I think what is happening now is that love part is being washed over in the message
0: of dogma. Right. That's what's happening in religion. Do you uh, find faith helpful in your own personal life or are you leaning into spirituality now or have you leaned out of spirituality for yourself and are looking at it more scientific? I think you can't help but look at
1: the scholarship of it when you work in a place like a a research university. So yes, I absolutely pay attention to the the history, the scholarship, the academic side of religion, or um, uh, specific religions, uh, the majority of religion again being Christianity. I think we follow that with um, uh, we have a lot of uh, Muslim and Hindu students here, and then the, the other religions. Like so, that there's that part of it. But for me personally, to answer your question, I mean, I grew up in a African American or Black Baptist environment with folks who came from southern states who were bringing that uh, religious culture to the tradition of Christianity to LA. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of stuff I didn't connect with because it wasn't really about Christianity. It was just a cultural thing. Like, why are they telling women not to wear pants in the church? Does it really matter? Right. First of all, (laughs) Jesus didn't pants if, if we're going back to historically what was going on. But I, you know, I would say stuff like that and get in trouble. Yeah. So I kind of pulled away from that and did like a whole quest and I went through the gamut of non-denominational, denominational Christian churches. I studied other religions. My practice right now is the Baha'i faith, but I tell people that I love faith and I love practice and my Christianity very much so. Uh, the way I grew up with it is entrenched in my heart and it has guided me through the really tough times. And the, the older I get, the more I realize that that is the true purpose of why we're here with this religion is to find a way through our differences to come together and understand that the differences we have are actually the strengths we have when we use them Um, in a purposeful way. If we were all the same, then this world, I believe, would be a little boring. We need people to be different sizes, have different thought processes, different ways of doing things. And it's like your family. You know, you got a brother or sister, you love them, but they do stuff and you're like, why the heck do you do that that way? But you still love them at the end of the day. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to do it that way. But sometimes you need them to do it that way because that's something you, that's not a strength for you, and vice versa. Right. You know? So it, it, that's how that's how I kind of look at it. You know?
0: Yeah, I uh, was having a conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago with a, a good friend of mine, and this is go, harkens back to how I'll say something and in the middle of saying something realize that I am wrong, and then thing I think it was Rick Warren who says you don't have to be, you don't have to believe everything you think, you don't have to believe everything you feel, and and all those things. So because you, you have to work it out. And he also says, uh, the first time you say something, you say so-and-so said the second time you say something, you say, I've heard somebody say the third time you say, I've always said, so you, by then you own the thing. So I have no idea if he said that or not, or he just said it three times. But what, uh, I told him in the, and then changed my mind was that I feel like Christians especially are more in love with their theology than they are with Jesus with God and with his creation. Yeah. And then I thought, you know, theology, everybody has a theology, Mm -hmm. good theology, bad theology. And then I switched it and I used the word dogma that people are more in love with their dogma because where I got the name for this podcast is Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. To me, that's the most important verse in the entire Bible. What does it mean to love God? Well, God created, if you believe the way I believe, everything we can see, taste, hear, smell. Right. And he created the people that are all around us. Mm. And as a father myself, I feel more love toward people who show love towards my children than other. So I think the best way to show love to God is to to love the people Mm -hmm. that he created and to take care of the planet that he has provided us with. Correct. Well, how do you love people? Well, that's where the last part comes in. Start by not being an asshole.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Love God, love people, don't be an asshole, and that's the bottom line, as far as I'm concerned.
1: I love that. Although I must say,
0: when I'm hearing you say that's the bottom
1: line, it's making me think of Stone Cold. Stone, Stone Cold. Well, that's the bottom line, <laughs> and that's the bottom line.
0: <laughs> I, I think that's a good place to stop, man. <laughs>